Good morning, everybody. Uh, good morning, good morning. First of all, I want to thank, of course, as always, Amy and Brian for their unique combination of love, department, and Israel and technological prowess, which I thought was possible. I want to thank my colleague, Caitlin Bolina, who is with me as always in the Reverential Sanctuary, and so appreciate your, your care, Caitlin. Thank you. I want to thank Andrew Hamill as well, and other colleagues on the tech end. I want to thank all of you for being on this uh, Zoom class this morning. I think that this class, for me anyway, is a tonic to the soul. It's just what the doctor ordered in the following, for the following two reasons. One is, I'm sure like me, we all get up in the morning and follow the news about Ukraine. And it's just relentlessly depressing and shattering and crushing. Uh, every morning's news, you, you see it about bombs and missiles and crushed buildings and destroyed lives and just so horrible. And Chabad, so first of all, that makes it impossible to talk about almost anything, but that if a war is happening, then it's almost impossible to talk about anything but that. And yet, what more can you say about Ukraine? So you have to talk about it, but what is there to say about it? You just are in a relentlessly kind of depressed cycle. So I think Chabad helps us break through that in a few ways. First of all, as I shared in one of the teachers, Chabad is from Ukraine. The great founder of modern Chabad, Menachem Mendel Schneerson, who, if you read Joseph Kalishkin's amazing biography of the Rebbe, it was the Rebbe who came up with the idea of sending a shliach to the four corners of the universe. If you're in Thailand on Pesach and you have a Seder, that's because of Menachem Mendel Schneerson and he came to Ukraine. So, and, and the Chabad dynasty from which he came lived in Ukraine during a time of tremendous anti-Semitism. And as I shared in the, in the teaser, Many of the dates that are unique to Chabad's calendar are dates where the Rebbe's were imprisoned by Ukrainian authorities and then were released. So they're from this area. But the other thing about Chabad is they're just so resilient, life-affirming, successful, and impactful. So it's from Ukraine and it transcends Ukraine and it affirms life. I just think it's really, really important. This podcast that Yehuda interviews, Murat Alexbrun, a Chabad person, was on the Sunday of uh, Hanukkah, so it was obviously well before the war, um, but it turned out to be the most popular podcast that uh, Yehuda Kurtz's uh, show at Harvard Institute in North America has had. More people resonated with this. So I want to ask you to think of two kind of meta questions. We're going to go through eight clips, eight little short, short vignettes uh, that we're going to listen to the interview of Yehuda Herzer and Mordecai Leitzer. Here's two questions for you. One, what do you take away, just as a human and as a Jew, in a hard time coming out of the pandemic and into this horrible war where we feel so helpless and hopeless and what can we do about it and we're drawn to it, but what do we do about it? And oh my God, and how does this Torah from Rabbi Lysra help you be a better you? Help you live with more courage, more energy, more optimism in the face of the world that is. This is not about denying the world that is or any illusions about the world that is. 
But in the face of the world that is, how can this Torah help you be a more effective you? And the second question is, what can we as a shul, clinical manual, what can we learn about how to reach more people more deeply? I remember when Amy was the president, um, that was always her tagline, reaching more people more deeply. A lot has changed since then, but that fundamental mission has not changed. How do we reach more people more deeply? And what does Rabbi Laxman of Chabad teach us? So individually, how am I better me? And collectively, how are we a better we? So with that, um, Ryan, if you can, and what we're going to do is we're going to listen to a clip, and then I'm going to take as many comments and much energy as, as flows from that. We'd love to have a conversation. This is not a lecture, it's a conversation. Um, if you want to comment on each of these clips, um, put your desire to comment in the chat room Amy Klein, and Amy will call on you. And, it's, and I'd love to hear every voice. So, Brian, if you can run the first clip, please. Thank you very much. Happy Hanukkah, good Chodesh, all of that. So um, you gave a TED Talk in 2018 uh, where you used the famous Hasidic story from, I think, the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe about um, that we need to be lamp lighters, people who go around and carry um, our lamps in the world and bring light to wherever it happens to be missing. It strikes me that, you know, maybe this is unfair, but I'd love your sense. It strikes me that, like, the biggest time of year for Chabad is Hanukkah time. Like it's like the high holidays, you know, reform movement, you're going to get one time a year and it's going to be on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, but Chabad, it's Hanukkah. Tell me a little bit about the particular relationship between Chabad and Hanukkah, whether what I'm seeing is totally absurd or whether it actually captures a piece of the ethos of what you think Chabad is trying to do. Well, I wouldn't say exactly that it's the high holidays in the sense that from the Hasidic point of view, every day is the high holidays. Every day has its own special revelation of godliness coming to the world, its own chance to make a difference. Uh, the question is only how you tap into the specific meanings of that day and use the potential for that day to do something new and innovative. Great. Now, I wanted to start with that because Rabbi Lightstone has the remarkable observation that every day is the high holidays. And I'd like to ask you to think about what would that mean? Could you do that? Would you want to do that? If you were to channel that kind of posture, every day is the high holidays, um, what would that look like? What would that do for your life? And how do you translate that into reality? Any takers? Wes, no takers, no takers yet, so I'll kick it off. Um, one thing that I would say that's interesting is if, if we've learned anything in these past two years, it's how precious life is and how important it is to try to spread the light every day because you hate to say it, but you never know. You never know. Right. Yeah, and I, so I, I, I love this, thank you, Amy. I, I love this because it speaks to the urgency 
of life and to an awareness of our vulnerability and precarity. And just to what Amy said, if every day, you know, could be, you don't know it's going to be tomorrow, then how do you maximize the, the intensity of this day? And that to me is what he's talking about. Every day is high holidays means that there's no day on the calendar that's a throwaway day. Every day is to be savored like it is an exquisite gift. And I think for me, that is the chief Torah of Judaism, that you never take a single day for granted. Obviously, if you're on vacation with your family in a perfect climate, in a perfect place, oh, well, that's the day you love. But what happens if it's a cold, icy, March, ordinary, gray Sunday? Could that be like a day on the Riviera? Could that be, and, and what if everything is not perfect? What if everything, most things are imperfect? You got this health issue and that worry, and this kid and that kid, and you got nothing but worries, and it's great clouds. Can you wake up and say, and have a kind of caution, because oh my God, March 12th, March 13th, March 14th is just the greatest gift in the world. I am going to intensely savor it. That to me is every day of the holidays. And my question for you is, if, if you were drawn to that, how would you make that happen? How would you make it real? What would it look like? So I think I got... Um, Marty, Marty Pelly has a question. And yes, to everybody else, we're sorry. We realize there's a problem with the sound and we're trying to work on it. So bear with us, please. Go ahead, Marty. It was more of a reaction to your question about the high holidays. And what I think of the high holidays is tshuva, you know, is repentance. And wouldn't it be great to live a life of introspection where you're always uh, examining what you've done during the day and say you're sorry for the things you messed up and be happy for the things that you did well? Yeah, and if, and if you did that, Marty, that would be that would be a better version of, of our life. So, okay, so that's one piece of this, which is uh, some spiritual homework. If you like this idea that every day is high holidays, what would that look like? I want to take you to um, the next piece, which is, of course, one of the things that we've all been thinking about is anti-Semitism. And of course, Chabad, by the way, can you hear me? Just show me by, if you can hear me, just a thumbs up. We can hear you, but you're echoing. Huh. Let me try a different move. Wes, I don't think it's going to help. We, well, you can try, but it's, I don't think it's going to help. Uh, Dave Beckman is, uh, is on his way over. Okay, Dave is here. That's better. This, does this make it better? That's better and very loud. Great. Okay, so Chabad is no stranger to anti-Semitism. And we are no stranger to anti-Semitism. And a question that I want to ask you is about self-censoring because of a fear of anti-Semitism. So I'll just tell the story that last Saturday night, Shira and I went to our first show in a hundred years. I think it was two years, but it felt like a hundred years. We went to the ART in Cambridge and I was wearing a kippah in Cambridge and I felt, now this could be my paranoia. This is totally possible that it's Jewish paranoia. But I felt uncomfortable. 
in Cambridge wearing my kippah. Wow. Because Cambridge, Harvard, Israel, Zionism, it's a challenging combination at this time. Nobody said anything, but I felt for the first time in America, like, should I be wearing my kippah now? Who needs all this fraught, freighted, charged intensity? Um, so this, the next clip is about and how to live proudly and in an identified way as a Jew in these charged times. So Brian, if we can listen to the second clip. I mean, I'll just share a, a personal story conveyed to me by a friend of ours. They have a son who learns in a prestigious private school, not a Jewish school, um, and one that I guess could be called nominally um, Christian in terms of its ideology. Um, and there is a very large menorah right outside of where the school happens to be. And so she told us how her son, you know, when he leaves school and, you know, there's all of the non-Jewish things going on in the private school over there, he comes outside and he's able to see this massive menorah you know, right in the center of the area. And it's a moment of pride for him and a chance for him to look and be able to see how Judaism is something that isn't just something inside of you, something, you know, hidden, like the jug of oil that's kind of hidden within you, but really something that can broadcast and speak to the public. And there's a chance and a way for people to take their Jewish identities, whatever they may be in terms of, you know, their particular expression and see how that they can really, you know, shine light into the darkness and take that public stance and share it publicly. Thank you, Brian. So to recap, one of Yehuda Kurtz's main points is that Chabad, even though it tries to make every day the high holidays, in many ways, their public high season is Hanukkah. Why? Because they take the menorah and they light it. It is a proud, public, unselfconscious affirmation of Jewish identity in the marketplace, right? And in this story, a kid who goes to a fancy, not Jewish private school, who's Jewish, he's a Jew in a fancy, not Jewish private school, he ends up feeling encouraged, not limited, but encouraged and strengthened by having a menorah in the public space. And I am wondering whether part of Chabad's secret sauce is precisely that Chabad rabbis look like Jews. Nobody would look at a Chabad rabbi and say there's somebody who's trying to pass as not Jewish. They're just proudly who they are. They are Jews. They look like Jews. Doesn't matter what kind of anti-Semitism. Doesn't look matter what kind of BDS environment. Doesn't matter what kind of anti-Israel environment. They are who they are, proud, self-confident, strong Jews. And I'm wondering what we can learn from that and whether we struggle with self-censoring. So any takers on that? And by the way, while you're doing that, I will just point out, to me, self-censoring in America is different from self-censoring in Europe. I would not wear a kippah in Europe, but just a, a terrain that I don't, you know, to me, I, this is, you know, from Elisa's sermon about institutional uh, or intergenerational trauma. To me, Europe equals killing field for Jews. So I don't wear kippah in Europe. So there I do self-censor. But in America, have we reached the point where we are self-censoring our Jewish identity? 
and eight takers. Anybody? Okay. Well, this is going well. Wait, oh, um, Wes, Wes, Audrey yes. Cadiz, and then Louise Wolf. Audrey, thank you, and Louise after that. Thank you. I would be happy, and I would be feel gratified if there was some way I could more publicly, you know, show my Jewishness. We're in Chapel Hill. There aren't very many Jews here, to say the least. Um, but as a woman, I'm not sure what I can do. Chabad down here um, sponsors a lot of events at our community center. There's one, for example, this afternoon uh, for Purim with Pony Ride. So I see their impact on the community down here, and it's very positive. So it's two things. If, as a woman, what can I do? And second of all, I, you know, Chabad really plays a role here. And um, Audrey, I know that, that you and Jack are in North Carolina in part as, as grandparents to your grandchildren. Mm -hmm. How does Chabad's presence there help shape how you transmit Judaism to your grandchildren? I, it doesn't play that bigger role mm -hmm. for us right now. Mm -hmm. um, both of our grandchildren at the moment are at the Jewish day school down here. And so, you know, between that and the fact that, for example, we do Shabbat with them every week, they're getting a lot of transmission <laughs> and positive transmission of what it means to be a Jew, irrespective right. of the broader community. Okay. Thank you, Audrey. Uh, Louise Wolf. Um, I, I was just gonna, um, express my opinion that when Chabad leaders act proudly and openly Jewish, um, it doesn't mean they haven't been being harassed for it. I can remember in the 1970s living in New York City and having some Orthodox male friend and traveling on the subway with him. And obviously, if I wasn't, you know, if I was just traveling alone, I didn't have this experience, but he got harassed by people on the subway wearing a yarmulke um, in the 1970s in New York City. And he did it anyway. And I also had the experience of seeing young teenagers targeting and bullying Orthodox men on the subway, um, older men in the 1970s in New York City. So I think this is there is anti-Semitism in America. It's been a long-standing problem. And one of the strengths of Chabad is that they're brave and they've done it anyway. Um, yeah, thank you, Louise. And I'm wondering, this is a question, not a statement. I leave you with a lingering question. What would that kind of courage and self-confidence look like if we were to possess it and embody it and display it. Um, I do think there is something about the self-assurance of I don't take BS from haters. I am who I am. I'm not getting off my game because of you. And I'm wondering how we channel that vibe. I'm gonna take two more comments on this clip and then we'll move to the next clip. Either Lillian or Richard Gray, I'm not sure which. Here. 
Um, I, I guess I, I would like to put forward, can you hear me? Yes. I'd like to put forward sort of an ex extreme idea, shall we say, maybe we should be sending our kids to some, as part of their Hebrew school to, to study with a Chabad organization, to, to share uh, time with, with Chabad children, to really appreciate, uh, well, hopefully the, the good and the powerful parts of that, and maybe to bring that back into our community. Uh, not see it as I think, I sort of see it as a bit of a threat, but to see it as something that we want to embrace. Yeah, I think uh, Richard, that is a really important question, which is um, the, the fine line between uh, learning from and emulating Chabad um, and then the practical issues of envy of Chabad and uh, uh, practical issues of turf, et cetera. We're gonna talk more about that and Yehuda raises that issue explicitly. Of course, this is very often an issue on college campuses where the Hillel and the Chabad are in the same campus. Um, as it turns out, apparently they somewhat cater to different crowds, the Hillel House, mostly caters to kids who grew up with more institutional Jewish connections and affiliations, and Chabad much more to unaffiliated Jews as a general proposition. But I think you raise a really important issue. Um, how do we do life together in a productive way, um, given our differences, um, et cetera? So we'll, we'll hold that, uh, but it's a really good point. Esther Freiberger, our last comment on this clip about self-censorship and anti-Semitism. Wes, I'm with yes. you all the way, to be honest with you. We have a lot of anti-Semitism here in the United States. My son wore his kippa since he was a toddler. But when he started to go to school, I literally started to ask him to cover his head with a, with a head because I was afraid he is going to be by his peers. And to be honest with you, my son is over 30 years old. I'm after him not to wear his kippah so he would not be hurt or hit by his patients, literally. And I don't know what to do on how to do, but we as Jews have to gather around and fight and be more uh, strong to get our opinion and thoughts across the other nations. Yeah. Uh, Esther, thank you for that. I mean, that is just so real. By the way, that is why very often people who wear kippot in general in safer spaces wear Yankees caps or baseball caps or other kinds of caps when they go into public spaces because they feel safer being a Yankees fan or a Red Sox fan or a Mets fan than a Jew. And that's real. And again, I think that's one of the latent reasons that there's so much admiration for Chabad, which is there's just no disguising the fact that they're Jewish and they're proud about it and they're self-confident about it in a world where uh, I know I was, I kept my kippah on at the ART, but the entire time I felt so distinctly uncomfortable. And I don't know, and what you mentioned about Ben, uh, right, 
I don't have the answer to that, but I think it's a really important important question. Um, I want to just in the interest of time, we have a bunch of other clips that are deeply important. This next one is about a word that has that I used to hear a lot, like a hundred times a week before the pandemic. It's a word that had I haven't heard so much during the pandemic, and it's it's a word that you don't hear so much now during the war. But I want to bring it back because it's it's a timeless and important concept. And, and it's at the heart of this next piece, which is spirituality. Very often, I would get the critique that conservative shuls don't do enough on spirituality, or can you be like this rabbi or that canner? They're so spiritual, they're so spiritual. And when you listen to this guy, Rabbi Lightstone, in this clip, he talks about why you would do a mitzvah. Why would you keep kosher? Why would you keep Shabbos? Why would you do a mitzvah? And he uses, I don't have any other way to describe it, very spiritual language. And I'm wondering what you think about it. Uh, Brian, if you can roll that one, please. So that when a person does a mitzvah, ultimately it creates a kesher, a connection between the nivra and the bora, between the, the created entity and the creator. And this is kind of hidden in the word mitzvah itself, which is connected to the Aramaic word safta, which means a bond, a connection. And what you're doing is you're creating a safta v'chibor, you're creating a connection, a bond between yourself and God. And when you create that connection, even if it's only a one-time act, I put on tefillin now, and tomorrow I don't, or whatever it is. I light menorah now, and you know tomorrow will be whatever it is. That one-time connection is a connection with something infinite. When you connect with something infinite, you connect with something transcendent, and you bring that revelation into the world, that is an infinite connection that continues on. And this is kind of an idea that it speaks about a head never put on tefillin before, um, that when a person puts on tefillin one time, it has this eternal kind of, you know, long tail uh, effect on the person himself. That all mitzvahs that we do are a chance to be able to create this eternal bond with the Creator. And therefore, the fact that right now I can help a Jew do a mitzvah, you know, that is a world to itself. Do I want every Jew to do more? Yeah, I, I want myself to do more. And because I want myself to do more and I want to grow as a Jew, and I believe that is part of Judaism, is the idea of growing and, and changing and challenging yourself and taking on more and exploring more. That's something I would like every Jew to do. But ultimately, when I hand that Jew a menorah, I don't have some sort of ulterior motive that I want to transform them and expect them to show up in a black hat tomorrow. If I give someone a menorah today, and they come with a black hat and a beard tomorrow, I'd say, like, slow your roll. Like, dude, like, let's... You know, mm -hmm. do this in a healthy way. Um, it really is about that one-time mitzvah. So I don't think there is this agenda in the sense that, you know, giving somebody the chance to take part right now has some sort of long-term goal. It's, it's you know, it, there's a sense of joy that, you know, like I have something I'm passionate about. I want to share it with you. And when you do this one thing, this is an entire world. Mm. So this is just so important. Rabbi Lightstone, in this brief clip you just heard, is addressing the question, why be Jewish? Why do a mitzvah? What's at stake in it? And he, and he talks about it creates an eternal connection between us and God, um, between the nivra and the bore. The nivra means the created thing, that is us, and the bore is God who created us. And he advances that rationale kind of in response, if you remember this part of the conversation with Yehuda, 
Yehuda is asking the question, don't you have an agenda? Don't you like, you're, you're nice and you're smiley and you, you offer people, uh, you know, alcohol at Shabbos dinner and you say you're welcoming and it's okay if people drive to you on Shabbos, but don't you really have an agenda, which is to end up converting everybody to Orthodox Jews? And Rabbi Lightstone in this extended conversation, you just heard a clip says, no, we don't want people to become Orthodox Jews. We want people to do more mitzvot. And the reason for this more mitzvot is each mitzvah connects you who, who does the mitzvah, who performs the mitzvah to God and to something eternal, your life, finite, flawed, insignificant, becomes invested with eternity, with infinitude, with the deepest, most possible great meaning. You are, you are connected to Hashem who created you and created the world by doing this mitzvah. That's why we want to do those mitzvot. So my question to you is, what do you think of that? Does that advance? I mean, would that persuade you? What Rabbi Lightstone just said, would that persuade you to add more mitzvot to your life? So if you can talk about that, um, would love to hear your comments and please add that to the chat. West, um, yes. Stan, Stan Steinberg and Judith Safir. And Alice, I'm sorry, Alice, I thought your comment was about the anti-Semitism. Why don't we start with Alice and then Stan okay. and then Judy. Okay, Alice Bressman, please. Um, I wrote something in the comment box that I would like to read because not everyone looks at the comment box. And I think all the clips are kind of taken out of context of the basic Chabad Rebbe's philosophy. And what I wrote is the Rebbe taught maintaining a positive perspective in the midst of hardship is essential to elevating one's quality of life. No matter how littered the past is with our collective monstrosities that have occurred or personal tragedies and issues, we, we are each capable of revealing the holy sparks of light that lie scattered beneath the surface of a shattered world. The world is God's garden. When the Rebbe was asked what his favorite prayer is, he said, Modani, that I wake each morning, we should count our blessings. And the essential piece that's missing in these clips are the joy and the rabbi said it in the clip of being a Jew, that each mitzvah you do brings you joy. That each day you get up, you have the opportunity to recreate your life. And the Rebbe certainly lived through horrors. And to me, that's the essence. And I wanna share with you, if you're interested in learning more about this, um, there's a book about the Rebbe's philosophy called Positivity Bias by Mendel Kalmanson, and it answers all the Ra Rabbi Garden Swartz's questions. Yes, there are horrible things going on, but we're sitting here destroying. And the Rebbe makes the point, count your blessings every day. The man who lived through the, he didn't, live in Europe during the Holocaust, but he lived through pogroms. 
can say, look forward, the Jews survived. Thank you, Alice. Thank you. Yeah, optimism and positivity were important pillars of the Rebbe's philosophy, no doubt. And uh, I didn't, I haven't read the volume you mentioned, but the Telushkin book about the Rebbe has a whole chapter about the, the Rebbe's uh, fervent belief in the importance of hopeful and optimistic language. So thank you so much for sharing that, Alice. Um, Stan, I wanted to, you're next, and I wanted to ask what your response was to Rabbi Lightstone's um, experience of mitzvot as creating an eternal connection between you and the God who created you, and whether that is persuasive to in, inspire you to do more mitzvot. Well, I saw a connection between the first clip and this clip, which is that every day is like the high holidays and every day is renewal and every day is the opportunity to improve your life and improve the world. So if the theme is that we each are individually charged with living a better life, um, I get that connection. And I also appreciate that they're not recruiting. Um, which is important. As far as to your specific question, being more connected to Hashem, uh, you know, my personal feeling is that I'm connected to myself, my family, my friends, my community, and that's what I'm operating on on a day-to-day -day basis. So when I choose to do more or something extra, um, I, I think it's, it's really at that level that I'm thinking. Um, as far as um, Chabad as an institution and, and your struggle at ART and wearing the kippah. Um, I, I think this these two clips illustrate that it's really one day at a time. And we're, as a group, as a community at Temple Emanuel, trying to expand our uh, reach and make sure that our community continues and that um, going to an extreme of adopting a Chabad style life um, probably isn't in our future. So what do we do? And I think it's the mitzvah of expanding our community reach um, and making that successful uh, by doing the things we're discussing because we're an institution that's different and we need to preserve our future um, in whatever form that takes. So. Um, I think that the community reach is really the important thing that we can do as a synagogue. Thank you so much, Dan. Uh, Judy Safrir. Judy, you're, you're muted and we don't see you. Well, I don't want you to see me because I'm okay. not properly dressed, but can you hear okay. me? Yes, now we hear you. Okay, um, I've kind of forgotten what I wanted to say because I got so involved in listening to what everybody said before me. Um, I loved what um, Alice said, um, but uh, I really do resonate with that idea of performing mitzvot as, like I feel that. I, I literally experience like a connection with the divine when I do mitzvot. And um, I also, also have to say that often I leave events at Temple Emmanuel feeling like there is something missing for me. 
that there is something that doesn't feel like it's tapping into that spiritual something that I'm longing for. And I've recently started attending the Yoga Minion with Michelle Hubbard, and she brings that quality that I'm looking for, um, that there's just something about, um, something that feels very, I don't know how to put it exactly, but in some kind of way, devotional in a way that sometimes feels missing for me. Mm. Judy, thank you. And I'm so glad that Michelle's Hubbard's uh, yoga class is, is helping you find a little bit of, of, of what you're looking for. Thank you. Uh, Carol Shower, you're our next speaker. Um, hi. Um, uh, thank you. Um, I, gosh, I, it, my comment is kind of a combination of both Alice and a bit of Stan in that, um, but, it, but, and actually not in Judy. <laughs> Sorry, Judy. In that, for me, I mean, I, you know, there's a many mitzvot I do not do. And, but I think the idea of doing them and maybe, um, maybe over time um, having, you know, doing more and more. It's, I agree with the idea of bringing joy and making you feel good about yourself. That's what I took from what Alice and Sam said. But for me, it's not, um, I, I don't have, I can't say that I have this connection, that it creates this connection to God or whatever God may be to people. But for me, it's in, in addition to that, that maybe it can bring you more, more life or bring somebody else joy or help them or whatever. Um, if you're talking about things like, you know, not, you know, that are not people to people type types of it. So um, that can bring meaning to yourself and, but also, it's more a, a connection, not to God, but to community. Right. It's about, you know, you know, connecting to my, you know, my, my people um, more so than the spiritual. Yeah, thank you, Carol. I mean, I think what, what I take away from you, Carol, is something that I hear a lot and see on the faces of people whenever we talk about God, which is God works for a segment of our community. It most definitely does not work for everybody. We have a lot of people, including a lot of people who come who are not God people. Uh, God just does not work and any kind of lecture or conversation or sermon or teaching about God kind of goes whoosh. That's why you've all heard this joke. A Garfinkel goes to shul to talk to God and Cone goes to Shul to talk to Garfinkel. And we have a lot of people who come to Shul to talk to Garfinkel. They don't come to talk to God, they come to talk to Garfinkel. And so speaking in the language of the Nivra and the Bore is very beautiful and consequential if you go to Shul to talk to God. But if you go to Shul to talk to Garfinkel, it, it doesn't really, it's not salient to your soul. So I think what we, what we try to do, we need to do a better job, obviously, is speaking multiple languages because there's multiple postures. Um, and I think Rabbi Lightstone offers a really powerful one 
for people who are inclined towards God, however people define it, but for people who like people, and that's why they come to Shul, for community. Um, community is why I come. Community is what I missed. Community, now that we can go and have, I mean, those of you who were at Shul yesterday and you saw real energy, real people, and most important of all, Kiddush, uh, and not no more outside Kiddush and no more grab-and-go Kiddush, but actual tables and chairs and bagels and tuna fish and Jews eating bagels and tuna fish and coffee and schmoozing, that's a big part of why people go to shul and and um you know and and so it's an and not an or but i appreciate the point carol um that 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 community is is an important thing to always keep in mind as well um we're going to take one last conversation can one I, last topic one I last speaker add, rather Wes? we're going to take one I, last I, speaker I, okay. on this issue which is going to be molly petter Hi, okay, thank you. Um, I, I first learned about Chabad probably um, in the 1980s when I met a Chabad rabbi and I asked him a question. I said, why do the wicked prosper? And he gave me a wonderful answer. He said, because it takes a little bit of light to dispel a lot of darkness. Um, just like when you light a candle in a dark room. And I thought that was a wonderful answer because what he was explaining to me is that we don't know everything about another person. So when we judge a person or a situation, we don't know the good that that person might have done in their life that might be dispelling some of the darkness that we see as wicked or whatever else, or somebody who we think is wicked prospering. But the other thing I would say about mitzvot is I think that from what I've learned from Chabad as well, is that I think that God is not revealed in the world unless we bring God into the world. And one of the ways that we do that is through mitzvot. When we do a mitzvot, when we say a blessing over the food, we elevate the energy of that food or the food itself um, and give it a sort of a more spiritual energy. Um, so I think that's how I see uh, the benefit and the beauty of mitzvot we can all do that we can take on more as we want to uh, or if we feel comfortable doing it and when we do i think we elevate whatever it is we're doing and in that way we bring god into the world mm. molly beautiful thank you thank you so much for that that's actually a good really helpful pivot for our next conversation this is a word that we haven't used yet in our conversation um which is a kind of related concepts of identity, your Jewish identity, and in particular, being a conservative Jew. Right? Temple Emanuel was founded as a conservative synagogue. If you read uh, our founding documents or our mission statement today, et cetera, it always talks about conservative uh, synagogue. And, and what Yehuda Kurtzer talks to Mordechai Lightstone about in this clip is questions of Jewish identity. Where, and here's the question I want to ask you to think about, in your self-definition, do you see yourself as a Jew or as a conservative Jew? So, um, Brian, if you'll play the next clip, please. 
you haven't used the language of identity at all. And it seems like the American Jewish community uses the language of identity all the time. What kind of Jew are you? I can actually displace the question of what you believe or how you behave through describing an adjective about you. And you're basically saying, I don't really care about your identity as a Jew. I care about you doing an express set of activities, this one or that one, right? Build a sukkah, put on tefillin, light a menorah, light Shabbos candles, etc. And that in and of itself is considered the telos. That's the end goal. And what you look like in terms of your identity, that might be a totally different conversation. Does that distinction make sense? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say, uh, you know, our identity is the same. We're Jewish. You know, the ways in which we express that may take on slightly different forms. But ultimately, the Judaism that we share, myself, the person, you know, Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses himself, we're all equally Jewish. That Judaism isn't different between us. And therefore, it's not a question of identity per se, because the identity is already there. Um, you know, each and every one of us is, is the same on a level. The question is our ability to be able to take part and do one more thing, so to speak. Mm. So, Rich, comments, thoughts about questions about that teaching that we have the same identity. We're Jewish. And um, he just has a very different... Uh, you know, doesn't care about conservative reform, reconstructionist, post-denominational, non-denominational uh, renewal. We're Jewish. Moshe Rabbeinu was Jewish too. We're all Jewish. And it matters what you do, not labels. So uh, people on that, uh, Steve Bookbinder. Steve? Okay, he has to unmute me. Okay, now yeah, I'm- Yeah, you're unmuted, yes. Um, I essentially agree that I don't look at Jews by a particular religious identity as such. And I think what is amazing about Chabad is they set themselves up everywhere and they don't care who walks in the door, whether that is a reformed Jew, whether that is a, they will ask you to wear a kippah, but they don't really care about that. And that is the welcoming picture of Chabad. Um, having grown up in a small town where there were anti-Semites, you couldn't help but be a Jew. <laughs> you were a Jew. And so therefore on the high holidays, if I wore a kippah on the street, I wasn't concerned because everybody knew who I was. And I should say that last summer I interviewed eight leaders of Hillel around the country, um, strong millennials. And I asked all of them, are you afraid to walk on your campus with a kippah or to the women, would you wear a Jewish star? And everyone said they weren't afraid. I mean, I think that's an important piece of information. The second thing I'd say about Chabad is though, that if you want to be part of Chabad, that is to move to Williamsburg, you have to take on a whole new life and a whole new way of looking at spirituality as well. I know that because I had a troubled first cousin, I'm still in touch with her, who is a Baalat Shuba. She, her mother was in fact a Gentile. Um, and she was taken into the community. She leads a school for, you know, you know people who return to the faith uh, and her husband does as well. And they live a very strict life, okay? So on one level, they recruit at times. She was recruited. Um, and so not recruited in the sense of we're going to come after you, but don't you want something more than the life you're leading? 
and it was offered to her. So I'm a conservative Jew because I'm right in the middle. <laughs> you know, there are a lot of things I like about the ritual and I strive for spirituality, but I can't completely share the spirituality of Chabad when you get into the community. I can share it as I did one time in a suburb of Rio where I went, I was on a business trip and I looked for a, a, a congregation and it turned out to be a Chabad and they welcomed me. But at the same time, I know I don't particularly wanna be part of that community and those spiritual beliefs, which extend way beyond what we're talking about. And I'll All give right. you one example. My first cousin, this first cousin's husband became terribly sick with COVID. And there is a long story of the miracle of how he survived, which was that one of the rabbis went and examined the mezuzahs in his house and the shins were all off, they were aged. He replaced them and this cousin, Eliezer, recovered. Now that's a belief I can't share, um, but there are other aspects of that spirituality that have made their lives happy and I respect them for that. Um, and there are some other things that they've done at times that I don't respect them for. Right. So, I'm Thank a conservative you, Jew for all those reasons. Thank you, Steve. Um, other thoughts on identity, uh, the, the extent to which you see that conservative Jews have principles and ideas and ideals that matter to you that actually do matter. Um, any, any other takers? John Dorfman, I see your hand is up. Yes, uh, I, I wondered if part of the issue as conservative Jews is that we've got big buildings to fill. In other words, my understanding of Chabad, save for 770, is that these are emissaries who go into communities in which the institution is represented by the figure of the Chabadnik, not the real estate. So as conservatives, you know, we we um, expanded during a time of a, a massive influx of Jews into our movement. That's no longer the case. But we're left with these institutions, these buildings we need to fill. And there's a sense about our movement, which is in demographic decline, that we need to do everything we can to keep the turnstiles moving. And I wondered if this creates a diluted message, a diluted message, not diluted, diluted message, or this dilutes our message to the very people we're trying to attract. In other words, we're all things to all people. And this is ever more so recently as we're in competition with reform and, and uh, to, to fill up our institutions. Chabad in contrast offers a purity. Um, we take all comers, but we are we as, as normative Jews, we have no. We're interested in normative Judaism, not all things to all people. Although this this operates on a doctrinal level, not an individual one. And so I wondered if we might um, have a thought experiment, which is what would our movement look like um, if we didn't have institutions to fill, buildings to fill? What would be our philosophy? I'll leave it there. Well, thank you, John. First of all, I, ironically, I think we actually had that experiment play out the last two years. We did not have a building to fill. 
and the building was not filled. And now, just recently, we're starting to see a little bit more of the building fill. I don't think it's about the building. I think, it, to me, it's about having a space where people can come and gather and get strength from one another. Um, but you are right that, that there are um, you know, practicalities that a lot of synagogues uh, are, are contending with. I will also just say one thing before, and I will take one last comment from Lynette Politon here in terms of ideas and ideals and principles. Uh, do they matter? Or are we all just Jews? So I, I want to put out there on the record, I raised the question. I didn't share my contention yet. I, I kind of like what he says, but I fundamentally disagree with it. Um, I think there are ideas and ideals and principles of being a conservative Jew that are deeply held to me. And that if I can't do that, I don't really want to participate in that religious community. And, 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 and I've had the experience, you know, my family was on vacation in a foreign place and I really wanted to go to shul for Kabbalah Shabbat. And we walked a very far way and we got to a Chabad and I forgot or didn't focus on one key difference between Temple Emanuel and Chabad. And I said this year, I got to get out of here. I can't do this. So we walked a long way spent two minutes there and walked home. And that is like a very important principle to me is men and women are equal. Egalitarian is deeply important to me. I don't like machitas. I don't do machitas. I won't go to a shul with a machitza. And I won't go to a shul where women are not co-equal. I won't go to a shul where women can't have aliyot. I won't go to a shul where women can't read Torah. I will not go to a shul where women cannot lead services. That does not work for me. Uh, my only exception to that is, you know, I have Orthodox family, so to be a good brother, to be a good uncle, I'll go to family simchas, um, although it's very uncomfortable for me to pray in space that's non-egalitarian, but on vacation to go to Chabad and sit behind, a, see women behind a machitza, see Shira and Jordi behind a machitza does not work for me. So I just want to leave you with a thought that actually ideas and ideals matter, and ideals like women are equal. Women are people too, and they're co-equal and have the same rights and responsibilities as, as men. To me, that is pivotal to my religious identity, and it's not experienced the same way at Chabad. Lynette, you are our last comment on this issue of identity. Lynette Politon. Okay, so um, that's a tough one to, <laughs> to follow. I too, I have to explain that I live in Florida for half the year. And I'm speaking to you from Florida. We have three grandchildren here. We have three grandchildren living in Malibu, California. And to a great extent, I wish there were more people on this, um, on this Zoom who were between the ages of 35 and 50 years old. Um, I, too, have great difficulty attending a service in a Chabad shul. On the other hand, I can tell you um, from the experiences of our adult children in both places, the kids are running to Chabad. It's, um, it's, un, uh, it's this feeling of come, don't worry about the money. Don't worry about 
anything else, just come, send your children to us. And there is, uh, is something that is very um, lovely and attractive to many uh, middle-aged people who um, are, are, you know, have a very different lifestyle, are both working very hard, lots of hours and so on. And um, it's just this, uh, a love that they feel uh, that is uninterrupted. Mm. So I, you know, that's it. So in other words, do I understand you to say, Lynette, that your children and grandchildren are drawn to Chabad locations in both of those cities? Yeah, they make it so easy. It's just easy and fun. I don't know enough about the education. Uh, what is it that, that draws uh, young people? I think their educational system is right. certainly something to be looked at. Um, right. and, uh, and, you know, of course, obviously, it's not going to be, the kids are not getting what they would get at a day school, et cetera, et cetera. But this right. speaks to a whole large group of, right. of people out there. Well, Annette, thank you for that. That is going to tee up. We have two last um, clips. And Lynette, your story tease up exactly uh, the next one, which is practical terms that we don't like talking about, but are real, like turf and ego and economics and market share. Now, the fact that a lifetime member of conservative shul, namely ours, has kids and grandkids who for some reason are not drawn to conservative shuls, but in Malibu and Florida, uh, where I'm sure there are conservative shuls that they could go to in Malibu and Florida if they wanted, but they don't go to conservative shuls. They go to Chabad. Is that a success story for the Jewish people? And or is that a failure story for the conservative movement? And let's say we hold that conservative movement actually has ideals and principles that matter including but not limited to egalitarianism, the fact that Lynette's grandchildren are being raised in a non-egalitarian space, is that a success for the Jewish people because otherwise they'd have nothing or is that a failure for the conservative movement because what about our principles and what about the next generation with our principles? So this next clip raises that issue. And of course it's felt immediately pretty much on every college campus in America, where there is the Chabad and there is the Hillel. And while we all love God and Jewish community and mitzvah, right? How do we not see the kid that goes to Chabad as a census of kids at Hillel that is down, right? How do you not see it as zero sum game? So that's this very real clip. Hey, uh, if, if Brian, if you can roll that. I think one of the other big obstacles that gets in the way is that a lot of what is imagined as hostility towards Chabad is actually envy. I see this a lot in the organized Jewish communities of why is it that Chabad can do X and get this kind of crowd and we can't do it? As opposed to saying, how do we imitate it? 
Like I've been frustrated for a decade now. Why hasn't non-Orthodox Judaism, conservative movement, reform movement, sent young families to live near college campuses? Invite people for Shabbos dinner. If you know that it's a model that works, why not imitate it? And there's all sorts of rational reasons that get deployed as to why it can't happen. But I think it winds up generating this sense of envy of they're somehow better at this than us, and therefore they must be doing something wrong. Um, I got to figure out like underneath the surface what's actually going on there. Right. Do, you, do you experience that? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say ultimately Chabad success is not just the model itself, even though I think that is tremendously successful, but it is kind of the, the passion and drive that the Shulchan have, which I don't know if others, it is possible for them to have, 100% it should exist. Okay. I think is that the end of that? Yeah. So the question that I think that tees up is uh, exactly this issue of uh, how do we regard Chabad, which is so effective? Um, and is it a zero sum game? Uh, are we cheering the fact that Lynette Politan's grandchildren in Florida and in Malibu have a place that they are drawn to? Uh, what does that mean? To, if you care about the conservative movement, um, what does it mean about our values and principles and the next generation, et cetera? Any takers on that before we get to our last clip? Um, let me just see. And I'm, I'm looking for folks who have not yet spoken before. Uh, Relly Dibner. Ray, is, right, so Rachel. folks who have not yet spoken would love to welcome your comments. Who is that, Amy? Rachel Dibner, Brian. Rachel Dibner would love to hear your thoughts. Hi, good morning. Um, I I think that the 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 warmth of the Chabad is is something that we can we can try to emulate in our conservative uh, movement, and I think maybe openness and maybe less say fees and 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 more. Um, more opportunities for people to to join and feel they're part of the community, and then bring bring that they will automatically kind of go with no question bring them in. The Chabad is very nice when it's when it doesn't hurt doesn't hurt you. But I had an experience of a, a kid who was a little bit lost. He actually an Israeli uh, removed relative who was looking for spirituality, ended up with Chabad and became so extreme with eight children and, and his, his family's uh, wealth had, been, had, had to be uh, converted to support Chabad and all of that. So that is another extreme. I think, uh, and, and this is not a good example, the, the war, but this does happen as well. I think the warmth, I think the welcoming, I think the, um, maybe feeling of less that it's institutionalized and it's it's obligatory in some ways. It's it's it, um, I think conservative Ju Judaism from the outside may not look as what we feel it is for our generation. We are different kind of generation, and I think the openness and the opportunities and the welcoming, and maybe maybe real support, financial support, or not support in that way, but making people not feel that they have to pay might, might bring people in closer and be doing a better job and selling who we are. Thank you. Thank you, Rachel. Um, last comment on this issue of practicality. 
uh, turf, zero-sum game. Alan and Judy Zathamary. I've been listening really closely because I've, oh, I'm on. I worked in a Chabad school for 22 years. I taught in a Hebrew day school that many of the Chabad rabbis in the local areas have sent their children. And no one tried to recruit me. No one tried to convert me. But we did talk about all these activities that I could participate in too, if I wanted to. Um, the, the rabbis work continuously. They, they're reverence. They're always baking and cooking and outreach. And the kids, no matter how young they are, do so much work. I mean, it's like I taught science, middle school and high school science and math. And I expected the kids to learn. And there would be times that I would get a, 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 just a letter or something like, you can't expect our kids to do schoolwork while they're doing all this um, work that we have to get ready for the holidays. And most of the time they didn't do that because they were good. They just didn't do their homework all the time. But it was quite an experience. They were warm, they were loving, they were kind, they were outreaching. And I, I really enjoyed being there. Um, and like I said, I worked with middle school age kids primarily and mainly girls who took care of younger siblings because they were big families and did a lot of cooking and cleaning and baking. And they were nice families. Thank you, Judy. Um, I wanna close by giving the last words uh, on this to Yehuda and Rabbi Lightstone. This is a story that takes my breath away. And I'm wondering what your version of this story would be if this version of this story were even possible for you and for us. It's the Penn Station story. That'll be our last clip. Somebody just told me recently a story where they said they commute into Penn Station and the same guy standing outside of Penn Station every day trying to get people to put on tefillin. And he asked him after a year, how many people put on tefillin? The guy said seven. I said, but it didn't didn't phase him, didn't didn't make him any less excited every single time he asked people to put on tefillin. So there's something there around drive and around passion. Can you unpack that at all? Like, what's that? What's going on? It's actually just a, a kind of a Hanukkah paradigm for this as well. The New York Times used to have a section where people would write in and share local stories. So in the early 90s, someone wrote in that, you know, I think he lived in, in Brighton Beach or somewhere in South Brooklyn. The, the doorbell rang, excuse me, are you Jewish? I'd like to give you a Hanukkah menorah. And the person said, you know, my religion is not your business. Please go away, whatever it is. And hold you in the building. And then the person says, okay, thank you very much. And then goes to the next door. And, and since, you know, the intercom is still on, um, the lady writing in was able to hear that the boy ran the next bell. And said, you know, and it was unfazed. It continued on, even though she just yelled at them. Um, I think, listen, when, when you, you really love someone, you really love a person, you're out there to do it for them. No matter what, you know, and that's a relationship, so to speak. That even when it's difficult and it's trying, because the love is there, you know, the action continues. And in that sense, I guess we're just crazy about Jews that we're really uh, willing and, and ready to be able to go out there and, and continue. And it could be difficult and it could be dispiriting. You know, my son, who was 11, decided he wanted to get a mitzvah tank for his class this year. Those aren't familiar mitzvah tanks; are these RVs that are 
taken and converted and they drive all around New York City for sure. I think it's part of the Hanukkah celebration in New York, without a doubt, to hear the parades and hear them going by. And so he's 11 years old and officially has to be 12 in the yeshiva, but he convinced the principal to let him do it. Part of it is that he and his friends pre-raised about half the necessary money. He launched a GoFundMe. He took over my Twitter account with my permission and, and sent out videos. And he and his classmates ended up bringing in like $4,000 to be able to get this mitzvah tank. And there were times, you know, the first days of the spirit, he came back and like, you know, we only met one person, whatever it is. And I said, you know, it's one person is a whole world. If you meet that one person, that one person is everything. Then, you know, you did everything right now, you know, and beyond that fact that you're there, you're on the street, people see you, people see you acting properly and asking them, you know, in a nice way and acting respectfully and being excited about what you do, you know, that can influence people as well, even if you never hear about it. But the fact that they saw you doing what you're doing, that has tremendous effect. Hmm. So that clip, there's kind of two stories that make the same point. There's a story about the Chabad rabbi who goes to Penn Station every day for a year and asks people, did you put on tefillin? Did you put on tefillin? And at the end of the year of doing that every day, day after day, hour after hour, seven people put on tefillin and he experiences that as a success because I got seven people to connect to the bore, to God, to the infinity, to the infinite importance of putting on tefillin and to believe in something that much. That's, that's a lodestar. And then the story of this Rebbe, of this Rabbi Lightstone, that his son at a young age for his mitzvah project raises $4,000 and comes up with a mitzvah tank, again, to try to inspire people with this uh, infinite importance of doing a mitzvah. So I wanna, I wanna come back to my orienting questions, which is what can we learn from Chabad in this challenging season uh, that would help us be better versions of ourselves? And what can we learn from Chabad that would help Temple Emanuel be a better version of itself as a whole religious community. And I think from Rabbi Lightstone's comments and from your comments about him, I take five qualities away. And my prayer is that each of us individually and we collectively can take up our game in all of these. One is, uh, is joy. You know, Alice talked about the, the Rebbe's preference to use uh, joy, to see joy in mitzvot, etc. cetera. Um, and for us to experience Judaism as a source of joy. For example, and this is demonstrable, the best way to start the day is at morning minion. And the best way to end the day is at evening minion. And if you've ever been to morning minion or have you ever been to evening minion, then you will know that the Gan Chapel at 7 a.m. or 7.30 p.m. is just everything good about life. You wake up and you think, oh my God, this day, I only have it once. How do I spend this day with great joy? If you like God, there's God. And if you are there to talk to Garfinkel, there's Garfinkel, plus there's bagels and tuna fish and coffee. It's just, an, so how do you find joy in all that we do? From that, how do we increase our sense of optimism? Um, and you know, my orienting posture was these guys come from the Ukraine and Ukraine is hard ter territory then and now. And somehow they come out of Ukraine 
and out of jail and out of anti-Semitism, optimistic? How can we find optimism in the mitzvot uh, that we do? And along with optimism, kind of the self-confidence to walk in the world as proud Jews, whatever that would look like. A third quality that you just hear about is, is warmth. Now we're, we've been trying to be warm and welcoming. Does actually, Ron Wolfson, who is a teacher of Judaism at, at the University of Judaism, literally wrote a book called Warm and Welcoming. We've brought him to our shul twice to improve our warm and welcoming game. Um, how do we do warm and welcoming better? How do we do warm and welcoming uh, better now as we're coming out of the pandemic? Um, openness. Uh, that's another thing that everybody talks about. They're just open, uh, non-judgmental. Uh, we try to be open and non-judgmental, but how do we do that in a way that lands so that people run to us? And the final piece, so important for us individually and collectively, is the point of the Penn Station story and, the, and Rabbi Lightstone's son's mitzvah tank story, passion. What are we passionate about in ways that motivate people? So I, I just want to say, we got a ton of passion here. I mean, I, I see this in Elisa's work with Afghan refugees. There are about 200 people who don't come to Shul to talk to God and 200 people that don't come to Shul to talk to Garfinkel. We have 200 people who don't go to Shul because Shul is not their thing but people are their thing and justice is their thing and welcoming the stranger is their thing. And, you know, Eliza is working with a committee of volunteers uh, who are responsible for helping several families of Afghan refugees to find a new life in greater Boston. And they are passionate about it and they give their energy to it and they love doing it and they believe in it. How can each of us individually and collectively give expression to noble passions that really embody our best values? That's an important part of being a human and that's an important part of being a Temple Emanuel. So joy, optimism, self-confidence, warmth, openness, and passion and doing it in ways that are consistent with our values, such as egalitarianism, um, are, I think that's the, that would be an ideal as we continue to, to move forward. And I wanna leave with just one last thought. Um, one thing that could be a booster shot for all of those qualities is going to Israel with us on Hartman um, we are doing Hartman again this year in person. The date is uh, June 22nd. We already have a good crowd of people who have already signed up and they've already committed. They've bought their tickets. They've made their hotel reservations. I am going myself and I would love to invite anyone who is thinking about how do I get more optimism? How do I get more joy? How do I get more self-confidence as a Jew, more warmth, more openness? How do I deepen my passion game for life and for Judaism? I can't imagine a better week than going to Hartman, uh, but now is the time to really do it. Um, we still have about a week or so. 
If you are at all open to it, uh, please email me. I'd be happy to talk to you. Uh, if you're at all open to it, please email Amy Klein. She would be happy to talk to you. Um, we, I can promise you, this is a money-back guarantee. If you were to go to Hartman this year, not only will you love it while you're doing it, but it's what Hemingway said about how do you know something is good for you? It's not if it's good while you're doing it, if it's good after you've done it, the afterglow, the after impact. The after impact of a week at Hartman actually is eternity. Um, and uh, it's just a beautiful thing. So I hope you'll consider it. And finally, our next and last Hartman podcast for the year is on Sunday, May 1 at 10 o'clock. Again, thank you all for joining. Uh, thank you, Amy and Brian. And thank you, Caitlin and Andrew. And have a fabulous rest of the day. Thank you. Bye.